All right. Welcome to the Herbal Hour. Today we have uh, an excellent guest, uh, Dr. Mitch Stargrove. He will be talking to us about uh, naturopathic medicine, the history of medicine. We want to dive into conversations about the ancient mystery school tradition, an incredibly uh, fascinating topic. Um, Dr. Mitch Stargrove is here with us today. He teaches history of medicine at OCOM and he founded the Blue Lotus Mystery School. Uh, he has a clinic in Beaverton. It's called a Wellspring of Natural Health and also a publishing company called Medicine Works. Uh, here with us today, Dr. Mitch. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And here being the first day of Navaratri, Festival of the Goddess, and also of Ramadan, um, uh, Dr. Laurie Stargrove, so all those, he should be turned into they. That's an important way to start because so much of the medicine that we work with is about relationships. Mm. And, you know, people talk about diseases and they talk about therapies and relationships are where it happens. That's so true. Yeah, the healing relationship between uh, patient and physician seems to be most of where the healing comes in. Yeah, I think actually a lot of times the therapeutics are secondary because just like medicine can't do anything without healing, um, therapeutics can't do anything without the relationship. Mm. So let's dive right in. Okay. What, what is a mystery school and what is that tradition? What is that referring to? Well, there are, there are many kinds of mystery schools, but generally um, it's a, it's a, a teacher to student, or at least a field of, of familiarity that has continuity um, with some similar people and practices in the past. Um, I tend to think of it as a practice-oriented kind of getting together. And, um, and there are mystery schools of all sorts. Um, so many of those could be around plant medicines. They could be around practices. So I, I think a Qigong lineage is a good example of a mystery school. You know, you watch the people who try and learn Qigong from a video and the people who learn it in a field with a group of people or just a teacher, and it's a different experience. Mm. So one, one is learning stuff and the other is, is really, you know, it, it, it's understanding, experiencing the mysteries. Um, so where this tends to come up is in medicine. Um, we hear a lot of derision of pre-modern practices by conventional medicine. Um, I'll bet you in 10, 20 years, they'll be eating their words on a lot of that stuff. Um, and like mercury amalgam, they'll pass by and not necessarily say, oh, sorry for being wrong for so long. Um, but, um, uh, what we see coming out of the ancient roots of the Mediterranean with medical practitioners is that there are formal schooling and then there are mystery schools. And that these are things that have continuity well into the Renaissance. And um, we see the practice, well, the, the teaching of astrology in medical school settings in Europe um, well into the 1800s, and uh, uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Robert Broadwell, who recently passed, um, had time uh, in London, he said, at the Royal London Homeopathic College, um, 
studying medical astrology with Dorothy Shepard. So a lot of this has been disowned by medicine in the last 200 years as they've claimed to be more scientific, which they really weren't much until the mid 20th century. But, um, you know, they try to disown a lot of that and modernism in general doesn't like old things and doesn't like um, non-quantifiable things or at least things that are not quantifiable by their methods. Um, but what I see is that the, the roots of medicine and science come out of magic mm. and they're really subsets. And if you think of the, you know, whether or not you have a hypothesis, you have an activity, you observe your activity and the outcomes from various angles, you scrutinize it, you refine it, you gather information. That is a scientific method. And um, I, I, though I, you know, the question of reproducibility, I think is often a dodgy one because inanimate things are reproducible. Um, human interactions are not. Um, so if I do the same acupuncture treatment on the same person a week apart, that's not a reproduction. They're totally independent events that are part of a con continuum. Um, but so, Medicine tends to disown uh, the, its roots in magic and in folk practices. You know, generally, uh, people went to a lot of school or have some social status, don't like to be admitting that they uh, learned a lot from peasant women, um, though Paracelsus made a point of boasting about it. But that was his tone of voice usually. Um, <laughs> and um, science likewise doesn't seem quite willing to recognize that its roots are coming from uh, magic. But in the European iconography, or at least the, the classical Mediterranean iconography, Tahuti, or Thoth as the Greek called him, is he is medicine, alchemy, libraries, science, um, the, 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 the knowledge transfer, the, the, the way that wisdom and knowledge play back and forth between the big and the small pictures. He's really the bridge between the unformed into the articulated. So that's why he's basically all language and symbol systems are said to be part of his activities. So, you know, I look at, you know, art and mythos and, and see what they have to say. And, um, you know, in that world, you, you see, they'd say, of course, we're scientific. And of course, we use scientific method. And we do our prayers. And we enter our altered states. And we thank the gods. Um, and out of that comes medical practices that were done for thousands of years in the Mediterranean. And we can talk more about Imhotep and, and such as that and Asclepius. But in, in that particular context, we do see um, most historians sort of carry Western culture back to the Greeks mm. and um, sort of stop there. But you know, whether you're talking Alexander or Pythagoras, hey, most of the Greeks, and I, I love Greeks, and actually a lot of them are Macedonian, and sort of the word Greek is a retrospective mishmash, but um, they wanted to be Egyptians, you know, just like the Romans wanted to be Greeks. And um, and then who knows, you know, the British Empire wants to be the Roman Empire. But, you know, people look back with these favorable judgments and aspirations. And coming out of Egypt, we see the, the mystery cult of Imhotep, which I'd like to talk about more. But just to jump to the broad picture of it, um, that mystery cult starts in ancient Chem, or Egypt as we know it. 
and um, carries forth through the Mediterranean. And we see all around the Mediterranean, these places where if you have an illness, you go and you know, put your case forth with Imhotep. Um, and those, that mystery school of Imhotep becomes, or at least feeds into, the mystery school of Asclepius. Now, nothing is, it's not like the Catholic Church, where you take the liturgy and you set, do the same thing everywhere. Inherently, the, the lineage of practitioners, of teachers, of students, evolves and reflects the experience and the place and the time of the people in that, that continuous stream of teachings and practices. Mm, so it's so, kind of like a living teaching, yeah. so, so to speak. The, the Greek version is going to have Greek characters and, you know, Greek nuances, but the, the you know, it's like, where did you learn? You know, you hang out with like, you know, Qigong people and, or even acupuncturists or herbalists, you know, and it's like, well, what's the basis of your authority? Uh, 14 years of family lineage or continuous, not necessarily family, but the, the continuity of the lineage. And that is something that, you know, how do you know how far back that goes? You don't, but it's the basis on which the teachings are transferred. So what I see going into particularly um, under um, Christianity and Catholicism in particular, and then later as um, the Renaissance begins, um, what we see is this continuity of the mystery school taking place alongside the formal school. Mm. So, um, yeah, we could talk about, about Hippocrates and Asclepius and where Asclepius comes from. But this mystery school notion being these are the, the non-academic uh, teaching venues um, for people who will be, will be practicing medicine. And uh, Lori and I really were, were sort of engaged in this activity. And then we were spending a number of years in close interaction with students from naturopathic and uh, Chinese medicine schools. And um, we heard over and over, oh, they're, they're not, they're, where's the magic? I came for more magic. I came, hey, like I talked to plants and now they just want me to like look at chemistry. Now, I think that's sort of a false duality, but you know, people were expecting to have both of them. Mm. Um, you know, the, the classical Chinese medicine program doesn't hide it. Um, and in fact, you know, that's one of its strengths. But, you know, um, generally though, you know, academic institutions have a narrow function. And we've done a lot of teaching, continuing education, um, conferences, local, national. But we also determined that a lot of the things that we wanted to talk about were not really something that needed to go through academic sort of accredited channels, nor through continuing education kind of channels that um, why do we need to compromise what we're doing? We have plenty of material um, that we can give in a relatively straight medical venue. Um, and we might touch upon some of the things we get really excited about. But like I wrote a 900 page book with two colleagues on drug herb and drug nutrient interactions. And, you know, I don't try to remember it. I want to look things up in it. But you're not usually going to get me all excited when I run into you in person and let's talk about licorice interactions. 
if we talk about some of this stuff, this, you know, is really where things are that are more exciting. Yeah, and it, it interests me how how those traditions, largely the mystery school ones, they've been forgotten within the conventional, even though looking back uh, into history, as you mentioned, uh, key figures in medicine like Hippocrates were were held to have gone to uh, uh, Asclepians or the Asclepius uh, mystery school tradition and learned much of what they uh, did from there. And at these uh, temples where people would go get their uh, dreams read, all sorts of more naturalistic therapies were done there. They even did surgeries. It's fascinating that in modern times, those kind of roots of even just Western uh, medicine have been uh, have been forgotten. And wh- what do you think is the reason that they have kind of fallen to the wayside? Because back in those times, they were considered, as you said, uh, a part of the education. It was more of the hidden part. It was more of the kind of secret society part of it, but yet they weren't completely secret because, uh, you know, common people all over the world knew about these places and would go to them. What do you think, like, why did they fall to the side? Is this like something to do with the, how science and scientism influences I, I think medicine, a lot of it's or? modernism. Mm. And, um, and I always ask, but if they're secret societies or mystery schools, well, they might be going on and we just don't know. Mm. Um, But uh, so there's a couple levels of things that I want to mention here. One is that at the time when both Hippocratic physicians and the uh, temple medicine was occurring in Greece, um, the, the general thing that, so I often, you know, sort of got the naturopathic history version that, oh yeah, you know, we learned to have fevers and fasting and all that in ancient Greece. And actually what I read in the real world that the Hippocratic physicians sent their tough cases to the temples. Mm. Um, And, you know, um, and I have a good friend, uh, Gonzalo Flores, who's a great acupuncturist and it's a curandero. And he says, you know, people send me these difficult cases but they, they do all the kind of, you know, straight natural medicine first, and then something's not working, you know, the obstacle, obstacle to cure problem. And they send them to him. He says, you know, where I come from, uh, Apache Gorondero medicine, he says, we take care of that stuff first. We take care of clearing out the ghosts, making sure you don't have any curses on you, clearing up your traumas, helping your ancestors align. We take care of that all first. And then we go back and touch up on the physical Mm. stuff because so much of physical medicine is coming from ancestral trauma, is coming from um, ideas and experiences we have, from stuff that's glommed on to us, all kinds of stuff. And um, he's really, you know, I think it, 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 it is something that I find as a clinician most people, if they walk in, I'm not going to like say, okay, we need to do a ceremony with you. I, I generally don't even find that's a good context for that kind of stuff. But um, to me, it really has to do with how you frame the issue. Mm-hmm. And and if someone comes in and they say, oh, I have eczema, you say, ah, I've got good natural stuff to make it go away. Whether it's fasting or homeopathic or dietary change may not matter. But then the people come back or they don't and because they're better, right? They come back and say, hey, I'm, I'm, my skin's better. So goodbye, because that's the allopathic disease frame model that they were taught. 
when in fact, if we show we came with a big frame and which parts of you do you want in, in the frame? And let's lay out a map and say, do we just want to work on symptoms? Do we work on patterns or do we work on who, who you are as a person being yourself? Um, and set that out. You know, and some people will say, you know, wow, I just want my knee not to hurt. And, and their knee stops hurting after some treatment, but they come back a year later and they say, you know, that stuff you said about my kidneys and my will and the fear and the knees and the trauma. And so like, that's all really the stuff I need to work on, not just my knee. Mm. My knee comes and goes and even I can manage it. You know, in medicine, they love to use the manage word. But people will say, you know, that is just some feedback. That is just some information from my system. And it's telling me there's a bigger story going on. Mm. And, um, you know, so that to me, I introduce it in that way. Um, and I find people start talking about all kinds of things that would be considered non-medical, I guess, early on, because you didn't say I'm only interested in your bowel movements or your skin. You said you're interested in them being the art of who they are. And, you know, people start talking about ceremonies they've been to and, you know, the ancestral work they're doing and all kinds of stuff that I'm sure if you had the discussion about their eczema, they would never be talking about. So how, how you frame it and where you're at with people. And we got some people who are, you know, wearing for the fix it chop and other people like, hey, my knee still hurts, but man, life is great. Um, so, you know, so do you, would you like to go back to the Imhotep story? Yes, it, yes. It is sort of dear to my heart. Okay. Yeah, please. So there are these, these two deities that are important and they have, they have a few kids. Um, one is named Ptah, P-T-A-H, and he's usually shown wrapped up like big wings wrapped. So he looks like some kind of insect in a, you know, cocoon kind of thing. And he has a blue cap and he is really considered one of the creator gods. Okay? Um, and he is often sort of a hidden character because he's sort of the one, as soon as it crosses the curtain, he's sort of stepping back. Um, but um, his partner is more well-known. Um, in fact, I just watched a little uh, YouTube video from the Met Museum in New York, and they featured, they had a little segment on uh, magic and healing in ancient Egypt. Mm. And she was the star. Because Sekhmet is the lion goddess. Okay, so there's two parts of this that I think are important. Um, one is she's a solar deity. She's considered the, the daughter of the sun god, Ra, and she's feminine, okay? We get brought up with lots of female, lunar, male, solar stuff, but that's not the case all over. And Egyptian deities are not gender sorted. So there's male and female gender uh, uh, moon gods and things like that. So, you know, they're more by function and by their story and their character than they are these sort of slots in the little map. But Sekhmet is known as the warrior of healing, not of medicine necessarily, healing and war and epidemics, things like that. Because she's the big mama cat. She's the one who protects. She's the one who restores order when there's disorder. So Egyptian deities can be seen as like beings but they can all be also be seen as um, the Neturu. So some people say that the Neturu is like the family of all the deities. And um, 
some people claim and others say not that the word nature comes from the word natur. But they're sort of like the stars, the ocean, the river. There are these parts of life. And when we see life go into what's called isfet or disorder or more accurately disrespect, mm. um, then we see things need to be brought back into order. Okay, so one example, and I, I love deer, um, and around here, maybe we even think about cougars, but you know, um, if you have a situation where there are too many deer, because the environment's changed, the whatever, there's fewer wolves, um, but there's too many deer, there is something in the system of life, the feedback loops, the web, that says, we're gonna have less deer. So whether that's them running out of food or having diseases, but by some mechanism, their population is reduced, that the dynamic equilibrium is restored. And I mentioned cougars because big cats might be part of the way that the deer population is reduced. But it's not a matter of not liking deer. It's a matter of the whole system and its integrity and its dynamic movement. So like you think about what's an obstacle to cure is that the dynamism in the equilibrium is gone. It's stuck somewhere, right? So how do you jostle it to get the whole thing moving? So um, there's this, so, so Sekhmet is the one who's the enforcer, you know, mm. almost a Kali aspect in that, you know, Kali, my disrespectful phrase is, um, you know, she doesn't cut off anything you really need. Um, and that component of restoring order is a primary function of Sekhmet. Who she is, is also our role mother, ma, uh, model. Um, the interesting term um, of the big cat mama is what is the children of the lioness called? Cubs? They're called her pride. Oh. Because the healthy Leo, right? The healthy Leo is creative, is expressive. They're what we would call the healthy ego. Right? They're not stuck in their role. They're being themselves authentically. It's a big secret about Sekhmet because Sekhmet is the quality within you, that big roar, that like that sun inside you that is your strength and that will chase away obscurations, that will scare away invaders, that will restore internal dynamism. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. if we wanted a candidate for like, let's make a picture of the vis, which we could talk about that term, but in its typical usage, you know, where's that self-healing power come from? That is segment. Mm. Hence, she as part of, she's often considered like the warrior goddess because she's protecting, not necessarily imperialistic, though her banners would be at the front of the ancient, uh, you know, army of Egypt. And mind you, in those armies, the Pharaoh goes at the front, not hiding in the back. Um, and because they're there protecting the realm. So it's the big cat motif. But her role in, in medicine or more accurately in healing is that she is that internal self-healing mechanism. So we really like Sekhmet and she's come into our life in many ways with many people. Um, and you know, whether one understands her as sort of a, a principle of nature or a deity or like, you know, a grandmother is, is in some respects irrelevant. 
And even if you wanted to depersonalize her and say, oh, there's this dynamic self-healing solar part of you, like, okay. And some people undoubtedly, some of the other places, other times have different names for that experience and that being. You know, like when we talk about our grandmother, like there's millions of grandmothers, right? They're still the grandmother. Kind of like an archetype. Yeah, yeah. Um, though uh, Jung never used the word archetype. Um, so one of the, the way that Sekhmet has her power is that she restores order. And that order is named Ma'at. Ma'at is the feather against which your heart is balanced when you die. Like in Chinese medicine, they have a, a saying of may your heart be empty and your stomach be full. Same thing, you want the heart to be open to the, to the Shen. And to me, the whole um, three worlds model of Chinese medicine is accurate metaphysiology. And um, the, the heart mind is like the diaphragm up, including the heart and the brain. But um, when we align ourselves with that principle of dynamic equilibrium or justice, um, then we're in the healthy place because we're both being ourselves and we're in healthy relationship with the environment. So this is what's called Ma'at, is this being who's shown um, with a feather. Um, and, and in fact, if you come into our office, behind our front desk is Ma'at because we work for natural law, right? We have no power other than to serve natural law. We don't claim we're, you know, here the, the fix-it God doctors. We're here, they cultivate yourself in alignment with justice and natural order. Mm. So, so that's where Ma'at comes from. And the cool part of it is, is that the, um, the theory being, so very similar in China that the emperor is not just a military or a political person, but is actually the heart connection of the people as a whole to the ancestors, to the stars, to the grand plan. Okay, so that in, so the, the Pharaoh and the emperor have very similar kind of functions in society. Though I would say at this time in history, our job is that we each have to be Pharaoh. We can't rely on external authorities that we each have to take the total responsibility to be ourselves. And when we're ourselves, we don't need to have anybody telling us what to do. Um, if anything, we just need to be a little more uh, compassionate with ourselves. But that, that quality of, of serving natural order, serving natural law is ultimately our responsibility and cultivating that feedback. So um, Ma'at is law, Ma'at is human law, is justice in relationships. And the notion of it is, so the Pharaoh has only has their power because of serving Ma'at. So the story goes that you, if you're in a small town and there's a merchant who's being dishonest, that you have a right to go to the Pharaoh and say, there is, disrespect and isfit, there is, there's harm being done, injustice in your kingdom. So maybe you're not so in alignment with Ma'at as you thought, because if the Pharaoh is in alignment with Ma'at, then the whole kingdom should be in harmony, just like the, the vision of the five phases working together in the Chinese society kind of Ma'at. 
and the heart has to be doing its job. It's not doing what the farmer does, it's not doing what the general does, it's doing what the heart does. So that, that accountability of the leadership is all again due to serving mind. Mm. So we view ourselves in many respects as physicians as serving mind. Mm. So a way that they would look at it is that each day, sort of, I guess, entropy, negentropy, that there, there is disorder and disrespect. I'd say largely failure of communication, not paying attention, lack of feedback. Um, and ISFIT develops. And it is our job as individual humans and collectively to each day create ma'at through how I work with you, how I am with my patients, how I am with the bees. Um, you know, that we have to create ma'at every day. Mm. And when you do that, you have a harmonious world. Mm. So ma'at is kind of, I'm understanding, uh, it's almost like an ideal or a force. Is there some kind of, uh, in, in your personal uh, belief and your experience, is there some like being, is there, you know, some being called ma'at which oh, you can contact and there definitely is a being mod historically and I'll, I'll mention that but it it, it it the closest many people say that Tao is the equivalent in asia and china mm. for mod because there's a practice you might know uh coming out of many magical traditions including things like vajrayana uh where you embody the deity they would say in the West, you take on the God form. And I used to do that um, in ritual settings, but also just in daily life. It's just, you know, you're walking down the street. Let's imagine you're a giant falcon. Let's imagine, you know, you're the cow goddess. Um, or Tahuti. Tahuti loves, I, if you've ever seen the residents who wear this band, they wear big eyeballs, but they wear these suits. And I used to like feel what it's like to walk down the street or ride my bike sort of in a tuxedo with a hat and a big beak like like the ibis god would have. And you take on that form so you're seeing the world from those eyes. But of all the deities that I have had some kind of relationship with, Ma'at, I could never be Ma'at. Mm -hmm. Ma'at is both abstract and everyday, is both the ideal and the necessary reality that it because ma'at is beyond the things of which we can take that kind of form because ma'at is ultimately the system the system of this like a, i almost get the hummingbird kind of image that here's the pivot and it's not a two-dimensional justice mm -hmm. scales it's like a, a humming around this pivotal point and it's all the dynamic relationships of a system of a biosystem Right, so that ma'at is is always that that change and that stillness. So it would be sort of hard to be ma'at. Mm. There are pictures and there are people that you know um, get messages from ma'at. Mm. So um, that you know is is one thing that um, I, in my working with a lot of people who have a relationship with ma'at or respect the uh, what ma'at means in the world. And these are people from ceremonial magician types to social justice types to people who say, oh, if we look at complexity theory, 
and feedback loops and that kind of dynamic system thinking, that, that's Ma'at. It's just we got fancy words for it and we can describe some of the details, but that's the same principle. Mm, like in physiology, homeostasis or something would be an yeah, analogy see, as a Cannon, concept? Or? Cannon's 1930s word is not adequate anymore. Mm. Do you want stasis? Yeah, yeah, right. Even homeostasis, a... you want homeodynamics. Homeodynamics. Right? That's mm. a much more accurate word. Um, you know, I had the pleasure many times of um, talking with Candace Pert, who discovered endorphin receptors. And when she got called the queen of brain chemistry occasionally, she would lay into people and sort of like, you didn't read what I wrote, did you? Because mm -hmm. this thing is brain chemistry. There's whole system chemistry and there's networks. And in fact, Peter Giadamo was uh, putting out the meme for a while of there are, there are no pathways, there were only networks. Mm. You know, and if you've got a pathway mentality, you won't see the network, mm. right? You're on one path in the woods and you don't know about all those other paths coming around all around that make a big system. But when we get above the system, get to know it better, we realize, oh, these are all networks. Wow. But when you have networks and interactions, dynamic relationships, where's the pivot? That's to me, that's Ma'at. So that comes down to physiology, that is ecology, that is social justice, is that's the organizing principle of a healthy collective organism. So I always was like, Ma'at's always been important to me. When I was in fourth and fifth grade in, in Catholic school, um, they wanted us to look at Vatican II and I got mostly into Gandhi. And, um, and he has a form, uh, a term called uh, Satyagraha which uh, translates generally as truth work or truth force. Mm. Um, and, um, and then I, I noticed, wow, truth. Okay, Satya, Satya is, is Ma'at, it's truth, because she's the goddess of truth, because truth is what comes from these dynamic relationships when we're honest about how things work. And force is also maybe a name for uh, this deity named Horus. And Horus is like the, the individuated human in their creative self, like solar embodiment. So um, it's like, oh, you know, different people, you look at like Teilhard de Chardin and uh, Gebser and all these different people and they have these different meta history theories that come together. Um, and this element of truth force is one thing that plays into how does humanity mature? And how do we turn these horrible situations that we're in now, mostly of our own creating, um, and how do we take the next step to move into a new way of being? Mm. And that, you know, that that is the challenge of our times. We cannot do tinkering. And um, you know, so what's the best re recourse? Whether you're talking to a patient about their health, or whether you're talking to a civilization, is let's restore Maat. Mm. So. In my own work, the notion of when I realized, yeah, I can never actually be Ma'at. I don't know how to, that would even feel, even though I've had experiences. I mean, Shiva, Tara, I mean, there's lots of beings that I've spent years just sort of like, oh, let's be in this field. And Ma'at, um, not so much. And then I realized, oh, 
who's the one in the medical business who's serving Ma'at? Oh, that's Sekhmet. Oh, oh, gosh, I'm actually operating from the position of Sekhmet. I'm not operating from the position of, of Ma'at. I'm here helping people with their self-healing and working on social justice. And um, wow, yeah, I'm actually being in the Sekhmet position. So, and then I had occasion now probably 12, 13 years ago to go to Egypt with my dear friend, Nikki Scully and Alex and Allison Gray and Imani White and a whole crew of merry pranksters and, um, and went to the temples and felt like they were open. They were open across time. Mm. Even we did this ceremony um, on the, on an island where an ISIS temple is, and that we were there and it is sort of bright and sparkly. And we got there at like 5.30 and we're there for dawn over the Nile. And then shortly after, all the tourists came and the buses started coming in, the people with their cameras started coming. And it was like in, like in um, Wizard of Oz. It went from technicolor, multi-dimensional into sort of flat black and white. Mm -hmm. And like the temple just closed down. It became down, a kind of attraction. And then it became a, a shallow bunch of rocks and dust and people. Mm. And it was, you know, sort of like, oh, these things are accessible. You know, I mean, from that point of view, you know, Marilyn Monroe, how much, how much energy has been pumped into Marilyn Monroe or John F. Kennedy or, you know, Jimi Hendrix? They're deities, you know, they've been built up as who they are by lots of love and lots of group energy. And, you know, they've got some kind of demigod status. Mm, so like the when uh, psychic energy of multiple people is kind of directed at something, it almost creates yeah. in, in a sense. Or it certainly charges something that exists. Mm. So, um, so uh, there's a couple of ways we need to take this. One is so... When you look at Sekhmet, Sekhmet and Ptah have a child named Nefertim mm -hmm. or Nefertum. And Nefertum is the blue lotus, not symbolized by, but is the blue lotus of how the soul enters from its star self, from Nuit, the star goddess. And everyone is a star in the body of Nuit. And how when they show Nefertum, he's, he's a babe in the lotus. So like you think of like the, the person's core self coming through and being born in that lotus. So that's Nefertum. So he's like the god of poof. He's like the ever emergent one. Okay. And these flowers, the lotuses are used a lot for symbolically because they go into the deep mud and they mm -hmm. go up and they have their internal rhythm. So Nefertum is that emergent process between it's almost like old kingdom Tantra. Of we got don't have Shiva and Shakti, we have Ptah and Sekhmet creating the third. Um, mm -hmm. Lori and I call, or at least one way we we a phrase we use a lot is post-binary. Non-binary is sort of in there with alternative medicine. It says what it's not, sort of. But what is it really? Is whenever you bring the two together, you get the third. And from that come the 10,000 things. And whether you're talking Egypt or China, or North India, this is sort of, you know the way that polarities create the post-binary. Um, so so uh, Nefertim is also the god of perfumes and incenses because what is it? It's all about the poof. 
So almost like Nataraj, if you've seen Nataraj, the dancing Shiva, because Shiva is that point of creation and destruction. He's always called the god of destruction, but only because he is the understanding that, yep, the world's destroyed and recreated every second, every millisecond, and every smaller increment you look, it's always being destroyed and recreated. So relax. <laughs> um, but Nefertum is that emergent process. And to me, that we've got the mother segment and we've got this emergent process is Nefertum is the place of self-healing, of being true to yourself of being connected to your source and always emerge, not being stuck in, oh, I'm this role or I got hurt this way or I have to behave this way with these people, but just being in total integrity. Mm. Now, Sekhmet. So, so that's where, so, so that's where, where Nefertim comes from. Mm -hmm. So ask me a question, then I'll tell you about the other child. Yes. Uh, so I was interested in knowing if, uh, Sekhmet, Nefertum, and Mat have uh, kind of like medical cults associated with them. Were there uh, physicians who were, you know, part of uh, Sekhmet uh, cult in the same way that Asclepius? Yes, directly and indirectly. Mm -hmm. um, one is my understanding um, from scholarly and other sources, is that all people going to some kind of medical care um, would be sort of initiated in the boot camps of Sekhmet. And it's hands-on work, opening your palms, just like Laogong, right? Imagine you're a big lion with paws. How many of you have cats? You know, those cats get on, they do their massage and they're humming mm -hmm. along. Think of that with a lioness. Um, but um, so she is the embodiment of it and uh, of that self-healing process. And um, she is also someone that people would go to in temple settings mm -hmm. to seek help. Um, when we look at sort of the groupings of um, physicians in Egypt, we've got the more magical and the more, more temple, more scholarly, but they're all magical. They're all scientific. They're all temple. So the scholarly people are the, the physicians and priests of Tahuti, okay? Because he's the knowledge wisdom guy. The Sekhmet ones are more on the magical end, but they're both. They're both physician and magician, okay? And then we have um, uh, Serket, who is a scorpion. So she deals a lot with poisons and things like that. And that has some element of pharmacology, but is it considered more sort of in the spirit medicine end of the spectrum? So we see throughout the lineages uh, that start in ancient Egypt and go through the Mediterranean, this spectrum from the more um, magician scholarly to the more ceremonial magical, but they're neither one is exclusive of, they're just sort of in a, a different focus. There isn't that like sharp delineation between like, this is magic and this is science. Well, the, especially between those, but there is a difference yeah. between going to this temple or that temple. Right. Okay. And we do see this in like in Greek medicine, there are the more physician types and there, there are more temple types. Mm. There are two different groups of physicians. And I think that continues all through time and it gets mushed together when the profession of physician consolidates. But you look within our profession, Mm -hmm. And we got people who are like very mechanistic, scientific, 
and we got people who are much more magical. And if we understand the principles of naturopathic medicine, it all should fit in the same container very well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the second child, the adopted child of Ptah and Sekhmet, who becomes a god by being uh, adopted, is Imhotep. So Imhotep is a guy who, um, in the uh, straight medical textbooks, they describe him as sort of the bridge between the mythic and the historical, which I always think is these are the people with stories but no birthday. And these are people who have a birth and a death and stories that over time become theoretically more factual. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a distinct like bridge. And he is one of the first known physicians. Mm. But more importantly, he is the, so there's this um, Dozier is a pharaoh who builds the first pyramid, the first step pyramid in a place called Saqqara. And, um, and this is old kingdom in Egypt uh, centered in Memphis. And um, he, so Imhotep works for Dozier. He is like the vizier, so sort of like the prime minister. He is the temple, he's the, the court physician. He is the architect and manager of the first pyramid project. He's also known as a poet, all these different kinds of functions. Um, so he's actually obviously a, a, a practitioner and the lineage of thought because he's got knowledge and he's got activation of that knowledge into physical activities and a bunch of things like that. Um, so when he dies, he becomes a demigod. A demigod is a human who attains God status. Mm. Now I would say, you know, and with Buddha and with Yeheshua and with blah, 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 that, you know, Shiva was a guy sitting on the mountain and, you know, he became Shiva, but he probably started as an individual. Mm. But this is an individual who becomes a God that's on the edges of what we know of as history. So we have birth date, death date, places mm -hmm. kind of information. They haven't found his tomb. But um, when he dies, he is adopted by Sekhmet and Ptah and becomes the God of medicine. Mm -hmm. okay? So many gods have healing or shall we say medical powers. They can affect you. But he is the, the God of medicine okay, as a set of practices. And in Egypt and for at least two to 3,000 years throughout the Mediterranean, there are temples that are where you go if you need help with your health is you go to these Imhotep temples and they have like mailboxes at least one place I've seen and you put your petition in there and maybe you make a sacrifice, animal sacrifice, something valuable, whatever. Um, and these are really the predecessors of much of this practice of temple-based medicine, okay? So um, that is the lineage that becomes the lineage or feeds into the lineage of Asclepius. And mm -hmm. I have seen, so it's interesting, in the European historical literature, you don't see anything about this. Mm -hmm. okay? You go to the Turkish literature, the Moroccan, the Arabic literature, and the Arabs were the scholars of this whole thing. Um, that's where the Renaissance is really, Europe restored through the, through the Muslims. Um, and um, what we see is the Oath of Imhotep and the Oath of Hippocrates are basically the same document. 
Mm. Okay. So how do you tell a, a, a lineage, you know, just like if, say if you're tracking um, Tara and uh, Amitabha and uh, Chenrezig, these North Indian pre-Buddhist tantric figures who become Buddhist figures, and then we see them migrate in different forms into China and Japan. And you can say, oh, Om Mani Padme Om. Boom, boom, boom. There's, that's, that, that's these guys, right? Oh, that, the Tara mantra, boom, boom, boom. And that's a lineage. So when you see the same pictures, you hear the same words, you say, hmm, these Imhotep people and these Asclepian people look like the same people in a different place a little later on in history. Mm. So that's that's very interesting that you uh, you say that. There's Even when I was looking into the Asclepius tradition, there seemed to be a lot of linkages, uh, particularly with Asclepius, Imhotep, um, of course, and even even things in the old testament i found and it, it made me start uh start wondering of you know in this time before you know electronic communication everyone in touch you know everyone just learned from a person that they met and then they went and they moved somewhere else and the theories changed and everything and becomes this kind of uh evolving uh system so as far as the transition between imhotep and asclepius and asclepius is um the mythology around asclepius is, is very similar uh it sounds like to imhotep you know like was probably an actual historical figure uh you know was taught by a, a god um, and then had these kind of uh, temples that you go to pray. How does how does that switch happen? Is it you know people from the Mediterranean kind of learn in Egypt and then they come back and they give it a new name or what do you think? Well, if it, I mean, according to people like Pythagoras and a lot of the famous Greeks, is you go to Alexandria, you go to Egypt. Um, and you learn the mysteries and you bring them back. Mm. Well, that does imply there's something there that's not in the place where you lived. Mm. And the, plus there's the value of provenance, of connecting to the lineage. So, you know, I mean, like when I wanted to learn Qigong, I learned from somebody who I knew had a good solid lineage, you know, and I could go to a bunch of places around town and some of them I knew their lineage, but, you know, I, I wanted to go with my friend Heiner to China and like hook into that current. And, um, you know, I, I, so I, I view it that way. So what we have, the Asclepian cult is really neat because you've got actually a whole family of characters. So the, the, the word um, for um, physician is, for example, one fam- named after one family member, Yatros, right? And, and we've got um, Hygieia and we've got Panacea cool thing about panacea you look at panacea she's always got a drum Hmm. to me that means oh she's an earlier shamanic bad word for greek but shamanic character who feeds into the temples you know sort of pre-temple feeds into the temples because the temples are going to take wherever the activity is going um cool thing about like the asclepian traditions um one we see the use of the single branch the single wand, um, the Asclepion, which is not a caduceus, and I hope we can talk about Tahuti and and Sekhmet and something about that, but the the single branch, and there's always a picture of like um, a snake Mm -hmm. and then a bowl 
And you always wonder if the snake is drinking out of the bowl or putting something into the bowl. Um, and Hygieia is the, the medicine of self-care in the family setting, domestic medicine. Um, panacea is interesting because um, what does it mean if you have a medicine that cures all things? Mm. That means that it's not about the external intervention. That means it's some kind of triggering, catalyzing of a healing process in the person. Mm. Applicable for all things. So, um, you know, it's more of a, a shamanic, overtly magical thing, probably some women's mysteries, just like Hygieia has. The places where this is practiced, um, the main place that I've been to is Epidavros, which is in southern Greece, out in the hillside, the famous, what's his name, Agamemnon, the guy in the bathtub mm -hmm. nearby. Um, and Lori and I went out on scooters, probably 1986. And, um, and you've got a temple. You've got uh, a big temple, and there's a Park Davis picture of a recreation which shows these pictures on the wall of like body parts that people have been healed. So they have a representation along the side are like cots and people are laying in them. And there's priests who are walking around, giving them some kind of brew. It's like some kind of ayahuasca ceremony or something like that. And there's a giant statue of Asclepius at the end mm -hmm. of the building. And the primary medicine is you come to this temple and you have an incubation. Cubatio. And um, what you're doing is you go into an altered state and the God comes to you and says, here's what's up. Like, you know, you're screwing up with your diet. You're like being unreasonable in your relationship. You're being dishonest. Something is going on. That's the big story of which your health problem is the localization. Mm. So I always think it's really cool that the medical doctors, the AMA in particular, uses the Asclepion and the symbology of, of Asclepius as their logo, as their mascot. Because, hey, you're going to do dream magic at the temple, and you're going to have a spa and nature trails. Oh, and here's the Isis temple. And in the, the home of the priest, in the middle of the floor is a snake hole. Mm -hmm. The snakes are part of the setup too, mm -hmm. right? And the early labyrinth is there and you go in the labyrinth maybe snakes in there too so the tholos i think is the name of it the un, un, underground like yeah, it's it's labyrinth it's, it's, yeah and and um you know and people use the term snake pit pejoratively mm. maybe not if the snake's got something to offer because mm. the snake in the system is the knowledge of the earth the ascending, the connecting, the above and below, and often again connected with female mysteries. Um, but you go to this this spa and you learn things about yourself, and you get relaxed and you get better. Um, that's pretty pretty good model. That yeah, absolutely. And some of the some of the uh, Esclepions, when you look at the you know floor map architecturally of all the things they had like a theater where they would have performances yeah. they had an area where people have baths this that it was like yeah. really like this uh, mystical natural healing center that people yeah. would come to and yeah. i think that idea is really very very beautiful and very needed Karenye, the um the jungian has a really good book on uh, asclepios with a lot of stuff of epidavros so 
um, let's try and shunt off a bit and we'll try and piece this puzzle together. So one of the things that this guy, Elan Toadi, who is really a Galen scholar, mm -hmm. um, he came and he talked at NUNM and they were thinking about bringing this collection to NUNM and Dr. David Schleich had a small dinner and we were talking about this. And um, what he really reframed for me was an understanding of what happened with Hippocrates. The term father of medicine is just such a wrong term. I mean, apart from the gender bias issue, which is just sort of like all over, um, he's not the father of medicine. Medicine has been going on all through history. Medicine mm -hmm. is people intervening from outside to help the person who's got the problem. Mm -hmm. um, he is the god of the medical profession. Okay. And, and it really starts as sort of a restraint of trade problem because the family, the Asclepiades, the literal family have a monopoly over the Asclepian sites. And they basically say to Hippocrates and his little crowd, they say, you guys can't practice here. You're not part of our cult because you get to be a cult through an initiated process. And hey, you guys aren't initiated and you're not gonna practice here and you're doing stuff that like isn't what we do. And besides, we're all a family and you're not part of the family, so goodbye. So what does Asclepia, I mean, what does Hippocrates do? He goes and establishes essentially a new temple with a new priesthood called physicians. And they say, hey, because we're a new temple, we need a code of ethics. We need a system of uh, recognition that you are now a member. You need these kinds of things to be part of the new cult. So it's the cult of physicians as opposed to the Asclepian cult, which is really more of a self-healing um, deity-oriented Mm. So to me, that was like, oh, that totally makes sense. And, you know, it's really about saying, claiming which role and, oh, you're not priests anymore doing temple medicine, you're physicians. Mm. And these are the accoutrements of a profession. So he is really the founder of the medical profession. And I think that's one of those, like, I see the look in your eyes, like, oh, now all the pieces fit together. That's more, much more elegant than this history, that this mm. medicine stuff. Because the father of medicine demeans temple medicine. Mm. And I don't, you know, whether someone's a fundamentalist Christian or goes to a Hindu temple or whatever, um, if it works for people, I'm interested. Right. Right. And I'm not going to demean people's beliefs is like I want their worldview to be respected. And most importantly, for them to be in alignment with their worldview. Mm. So just like the, the vaccine thing. Everybody asked me, what about your vaccine? What do you recommend? I say, you're, I recommend you do what your heart says you do. Mm -hmm. And if you're alignment with yourself, it's going to be the best choice you can make. But if you decide you're going to get a vaccine because you want to visit your cousin, that's not likely to work so well. Mm -hmm. And that's just because I believe the external interventions are secondary to the person's response pattern. So you got to have a good response by lining up with who you are. So same thing, if someone, you know, ha has a certain religious or cultural bent, my job is to respect that. You know, I, I use the blood type diet, but I use, I have a lot of patients who are um, Orthodox Hindus. And it's not my job to tell them they should start eating meat. Um, my job is to say, how do we make this work for your blood sugar? Because you don't have this animal protein. You know, I mean, there's part of me that also says, hey, you're a, a ranch guy from Idaho and you're an A blood type and we should talk about vegetarian diet. Fish and birds are okay, but those four legged you probably shouldn't be eating them. 
Um, and there it's sort of a, a, a cultural disruptor, like who are you not, who are you trained to be kind of thing. But ultimately my job is to help people elicit their values and to be in alignment with those, which I consider, you know, that's working for Mahat. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So I wanna talk about the, the two schools uh, coming out of the physicians. Mm -hmm. But I have to do a little prelude. So when I teach history of medicine, I show a caduceus. Mm -hmm. And I say, you got two snakes. One is the intervening medicine. The other is the self-healing process. You want both snakes, okay? Because it's really not the one or the other. It's how they work together and they crisscross and all kinds of other parts of that imagery. So I take that back to Sekhmet and Tahuti, okay? Tahuti is the one who knows the name, right? What's the big thing about disease? Everybody wants you to know the name of the of the disease and the insurance companies want you to know the number. I see them, I see the codes. So it's all, it's all the magic of naming. And mm. the story all around the world is if you know, if you can correctly vibrate the name of something, you have control over it, okay? So that is why your patient wants you to know that, that they, they want you to know that you have gastritis. You know, I mean, the, the, they have, you know, dermatitis. And it's like, yes, all I did was take what you said and put it in Latin. But now mm -hmm. you have a word in the person, oh, you have, I have dermatitis. And it's like, that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. You know, but people take comfort in that. And even, you know, if I said, well, you have wind heat in the blood, it's like, that's the wrong cultural model. Therapeutically, it might be more useful, but it's not really getting them the understanding, the cultural reassurance that that they're going through the proper ritual. Because mm -hmm. even if they're a modernist scientist, some kind of person, there's a ritual process that their culture has taught them they need to go through. And then when they go through that process, their self-healing can start because they're not worried about it. They're not getting in their own mm -hmm. way. They're saying, oh, now I've done the thing. So now I'm going to get better. Okay? It takes the unknown out of it almost. It's like, well, or at as least a patient, a way yeah. to accept the unknown. But it is that yeah. vibration is a key thing. So Thoth mm. is the one who creates diagnosis. He creates the knowledge of the body. Mm. Um, in the late 1980s, early 90s, a group of about 100 of us, we created around NCNM and OCOM a program called IBIS, the Integrative Body-Mind Information System, originally mm. called the Interactive Body-Mind Information System. But Ibis is the god form of Tahuti because he's the library guy. He keeps all the information, particularly has scientific method and medical outcomes in mind. So Tahuti is the medical perspective of knowing the name and coming from outside and changing it. Whether that's a magician or a doctor or a car mechanic, sort of doesn't matter. Um, the other side is Sekhmet, which is the self-healing component. Okay, that knowing yourself, being rooted in yourself, feeling your paws on the ground, connected to the sun that's inside you, rawr, that's the thing that's like gonna help you get better. So those two come out of, out of Egypt. And what they really feed into in the Greek system is kos, is the self-healing by aligning with nature. And that nidos, and both of these are spelled historically with a K, but now more often with a C, um, and they're not really in what we call Greece. They're ones off of Turkey, as we would call mm -hmm. them, the other ones on land on Turkey. But they're in the, that Greek time. Greek empire uh, area. Yeah. 
Um, and that what we get out of that uh, is the Canidos are the people who want to know the name of something. They want to know the it. So um, in the work of Harrison Coulter, a uh, great four volume history of natural medicine, best history book I've ever seen in terms of culture and things like that. But um, these two schools is one is the doctor is in charge and is going to name it and do it to you and you're the passive object, okay? The mm -hmm. other is the one, the school of Kos, which Hippocrates went to and his father was, and they were Asclepian priests before they were physicians in, in that system. But that is the um, healing comes from nature through yourself. And what is important is not the symptom, but how you respond to, to the stressor. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in one place, knowing it's asthma is really useful. I don't really know how, but, you know, having that name, you're going to get rid of asthma. And when people all come and they say, make my bursitis go away, make my gastritis, they have all these things that they want to be against to make them go away. So they not only have externalized it, but they've made it an adversarial relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sort of skeptical of that approach, even when there's some functional value to it. But the other school is emphasized that, oh, when you have a certain thing happen, you get hot and you get red. I get chilly and I get purple. Wow. Same stressor, different response. Mm -hmm. So in the school of coast, you work the response pattern. And essentially you say in a homeopathic kind of way, whether it's homeopathic medicines or other modalities, but what can we do to amplify the body's response pattern to essentially bring it to a healthy conclusion? Whereas in the school of Canidos, it's body shut up. Hey, your cough went away, like don't complain. Yes, you've got phlegm every day, but your cough went away. Mm. Um, so one is a symptom management or symptom extermination model, ideally, and the other mm. is a how do you cultivate the person so they're in a health, healthy alignment, and that helps bring about their resolution of their symptoms. Mm. Um, these are really on a continuum, but there is some places, you know, I mean, I see it every day with patients, and it's like, oh, do we want to cover up your pain and your sciatic nerve, or do we want to resolve it? If I give you these herbs or these drugs, it is going to obscure the symptoms. If I give you these blood moving herbs, it's actually going to move it through, treat the cause, and probably actually have better clinical outcomes. But one is the against and one is the for. Mm -hmm. So that if, and if you look at the names of everything in standard medicine, it's against, 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 right? Anti-inflammatories, anti-hypertensive, and how many pros do they got? They got, now they got probiotics, you know, which they harassed us for the last hundred years. For. Um, but it's very focused on disease entities and then like creating disease entities, yep. naming them, classifying them, and yep. then developing methods specifically for those disease entities, whether or not they're true. And that's especially bad in the DSM, yeah. I would say. See, and that's all end-state pathology. And what mm -hmm. we really have is health, dysfunction, and disease. Mm -hmm. And they sort of want to ignore dysfunction and certainly ignore health, um, except to talk about it in advertising, but they want to wait until you have a pathology so you can name it, right? We run into that all the time. Oh, your lab tests are normal, but you feel miserable. Well, come back when you're worse. And they come and see us. And what do we do? We do a pattern differentiation. We're not just looking at the symptom. We're looking at how their response pattern creates these 
different symptoms in the attempt to resolve. So we're really saying, oh, this person's body responds in these patterns based on their experience and their physiology, and these people go this way. Oh, this is a belladonna person. Boom. So what do we, we want to enhance their fever, have them go through it. Okay. So, um, you know, Chinese medicine actually does both, but they're very also much more strategic oriented because in the model that Lori and I use, we basically are anthropological or descriptive in saying how, what happens when uh, skillful physicians are working with a given person. Okay. We call this person-centered care or person-centered medicine or person-centered collaborative care because, again, relationships and multi-practitioner relationships are really key to the reality of the situation. You know, we, we, we gripe when we say, hey, your dermatologist and your endocrinologist don't talk to each other. Like, to me, they're the same thing. You know, I'm schooled in herbs and homeopathy and Chinese medicine, and, and it's like, hey, you have this liver syndrome and it's showing up in these five systems and you've got four doctors and none of them talked about your liver because they're all interested in pathology outcome end state kind of, uh, you know, where's it going? Not the pattern underneath. So what we do is we really say, how can a tactic fit into a strategy? So if a patient comes and they said, oh, I had my uterus out and it's always been a problem since. I, my job isn't to make them feel bad that they took their uterus out, just like if they got the vaccine and had five days of adverse effects. My job is to help them where they're at and help them stay in alignment. Hey, you got yourself in this situation, trust that you have a way to go through it, right? It's not just about your gut knowing a way through it, it's about your soul having a way through it. So if you made these choices, how do we make them, make them work better? You took antibiotics for your ear infection while you're traveling. Okay, well, now we got to look at your phlegm. We got to look at your spleen and your digestive efficiency. And we got to give you six months of healthy bacteria. Um, you know, short-term savings, long-term work um, mm -hmm. cleanup. But hey, that's going to help your whole system anyways. So we use a three-by-three three map that is... Um, problem, pattern, person. So that's sort of the frame. How big or small are you looking? Are you looking at the neck pain? Are you looking at the liver tension, endocrine revved up kind of story behind the neck pain? Or are you looking at what that really, that healing process is going to be in someone's life and that process of discovering and aligning that makes them who, them, who they are? So those three levels of the problem, the pattern, or the person. You know, and sometimes we see like what I'd call the vitamin C and visualization treatment of complex diseases with multiple layers. And it's like visualization is great. Prayer is great. They might take care of everything, but I'd prefer we also work on your biochemistry and on your ergonomics and on your marriage and this other stuff. Yes, keep doing the visualization and the prayer. And if you want to take vitamin C, take good vitamin C. But there, there tend to be people who want to skip the mundane mechanical part and just go into the like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm changing my life and talking to my ancestors and painting. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's all good. And what are you doing about your chair? And mm -hmm. what about what happens when you eat these certain foods? Mm -hmm. Because to me, that's back to Ma'at. It's about the feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So I look at suppression not as just, oh, the kid had 103 fever and you gave him something that squished it um, or you put stuff on your arm and made the rash go away. 
what really to me is more important is that it's a loss of information. Mm. It's cutting off feedback. Because before you could tell when you're stressed and your arm got worse, wow, this stressful situation has something to do with it. I go into work or I go visit my mother or whatever it is, and my rash is worse. Like right. we, just, we put the cortisol on, now we have no, no feedback, mm. right? Which probably, mm. you know, from the mental health point of view, probably goes into the subtle planes of emotions and, you know, body armoring and whatever else you want to think. But it's much easier to leave it at the skin and say, you know, skin, like, tell me when things aren't, aren't so good. And I have a handful of patients, a thing I learned many years ago, who, when their skin's resolving, I say, leave a little place for feedback. Just leave the little patch next to your little finger, maybe by the heart channel even, right? And like when that starts getting red, check what's happening. Because mm -hmm. you don't need the whole thing. But to me, suppression, more than how it messes up mm. with the body's immune response pattern and mm. bodies don't learn and they forget and they get deranged, is that you literally don't have the information. Yeah, it's People disguising. Driving around their bodies all day long with their cars, with their with their eyes closed and wondering why they land in the ditch, because mm -hmm. nobody told them like, watch what happens when you eat the food. Eating ice cream isn't really necessarily bad if you get good quality ice cream, but watch how your body does it. Look, her body really likes it and she doesn't get phlegm. I eat it and I get sinus infection. Maybe that doesn't work for me, even if it's really high quality ice cream. Right, I'm getting a feedback. The more refined state. So I, you know, and here people come in and they say, "Oh, I ate bad food." It's like, what was it? You know, there's the quality issue. There's the like, Cheetos are not food. You know, then there's the <laughs> supposedly good for everybody food, and then there's the what works for you food. Yeah. So, you know, we want to find out. Well, why do you think it was a bad food? Is this a moral question, or do you need to do hail marys? Um, did you Buy it at the bad grocery store where you never go otherwise. Were you in an emotional state? What what was part of the bad part? Or is it just we had a hypothesis, we tried something, and hey, look, we thought phlegm might come from eating cold dairy sweetness. Wow, look, you proved it. Okay. So the next nuance would be why don't you try it in the cold, rainy winter? And why don't you try it in Arizona? Hey, look, in Arizona, it's hot and dry and you tolerate the ice cream better. Even if you're an O blood type or an A blood type who normally doesn't. But if you're strong enough, you know, we don't all be want to be hapless victims of life and of our diet or mm -hmm. work or whatever. Is hey, you got a role in this. Eat the ice cream when it's not going to mess you up. Right? Most of us eat when we're stressed or we're tired or emotionally, whatever. Um, it's like, no, you should eat the ice cream when you're in the right environment and the right state of mind and exalt in it. Mm -hmm. right? Enjoy, Even yeah. if you're on the road and you got to eat at McDonald's, don't say, oh, this is poison. It's going to kill me. Say, oh, thank you, cow. Thank you, vegetable fat solids. Thank fat you, solids. whatever, you know. <laughs> the accurate description. You're, you're nourishing me at this point and I can transmute it because I'm mm -hmm. enjoying it. You know, people forget the value of enjoyment mm -hmm. as a health function. You know, people go, oh, I ate chocolate. And I'm like, hey, it was a good chocolate. Did you enjoy it? Probably was a net gain. Okay. If you're starting to eat chocolate a whole bunch every day, maybe the chocolate isn't the problem. Maybe it's why, what are you trying to do with the chocolate? If you're just sitting there enjoying the lusciousness of the chocolate, um, that can be a 
good mystical experience. You know, that is that that is rejuvenative to your health. If you're doing it because your girlfriend and you are having a hard time, it is not going to be a good substitute. Mm-hmm. So it's not the action, it's the motivation. And, you know, that, again, we get back to the two schools of medicine. Are we trying to cultivate the person and their alignment with nature? Or are we trying to, you know, make a problem go away? And with our three-by-three map, it really doesn't go, you know, it's not an either-or choice. So the other access is about fixing, about optimizing, and about activating, okay? So most of medicine is futzing about one-ninth of the map about which thing should we use to fix the medicine. And you can use herbs suppressively. You can even use homeopathy suppressively. Um, You can moderate symptoms with acupuncture. I don't know if you can actually um, suppress. If you want, we'll talk about information therapies because I don't consider acupuncture and homeopathy energy medicine. I think that's sort of a useless term. but they're information because they're very clear languages with strong associations. And what are you doing? We're saying, oh, you have this confusion and blockage. We're going to send you this signal to catalyze, to disentangle, to move, to restore. Mm-hmm. Back to Maat, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they're information. And I think, you know, we have energy, which is pure, undifferentiated. And frankly, that mostly comes from someone else. You know, if you're in a beautiful, radiant state, being your true self, and we click in self to self, hey, that's mutual reinforcement. That's really good. That's probably energy medicine. And any good therapeutic relationship has that happen. But as soon as you start, like, trying to make it do something, you're in the middle world. You're in the world of relationships and patterns and interactions. If you want to say, we want to cool the blood, we want to move the stagnation, you're in information. So it's some kind of programmed information, um, so bringing greater coherence. You know, it's a signal. Whereas the lower warmer is about stuff. You know, and a lot of people, oh, I just want energy. And like, eat your bones in your period, they want stuff. All the energizing, clarity, all kinds of whatevers you do are good, but you need some blood, or you need some sleep, or you need something other than just rearranging. So I use this, you know, the three worlds model of Chinese medicine and of most shamanic animistic worldviews that they have heaven, they have earth, and they have the middle world of relationships in everyday life, mm-hmm. right? So we actually take our, that cosmology and say, how does that relate therapeutically? So what do we got? You know, with the lower world is about the stuff and about the diseases and the mechanics. The middle world is about the pattern whether it's the organs, because five phases is the better term, not five elements, because they're really about relationships in a healthy family, the healthy business, the healthy kingdom, the healthy body. Um, So how do we organize, communicate to get that middle world working well? And how do we stay aligned to what I would call our star self that's, you know, coming down to to fuel our crown and, you know, fill our our heart, Um, you know, if that's the way the world is, how do our therapeutics align with that? And in that kind of model, especially if we use the, the problem fix-it level to understand how to optimize. Oh, I have tendencies to go in this rut. How do I change that? That's optimizing health. That's changing at the pattern level. So that's what's called cure, right? You used to have this pattern and now you don't. So medicine treats. 
patterns is nature cures because we restore to ma'at. We restore to healthy interaction patterns mm-hmm. and the rumples and the knots and the misalignments clear up. You know, you watch a hillside or a river. What does nature do over time with all the rumples and the blockages? Mm-hmm. They're gone, right? So nature is inherently self-healing because we're part of Ga- we're part of Gaia, a bigger organism, and we're part of a bioregion, a local organism. But that pattern level is where nature cures, which I think is, you know, people talk about nature cure. And uh, frankly, a lot of the historical framing of that, I think, is a little inaccurate and idealized. But nature does cure. That's part of the natural system because bodies are not the only thing that's self-healing. Natural systems are. Ecology is. The planet is. You know, and that's why the physicians of coast is like, hey, align with nature and like the big picture, you'll be riding the wave. You're not having to swim. Mm -hmm. And the bigger layer, the heart mind level is where the person's activating to be themselves. You know, that like, oh, I hurt my shoulder. So I tried um, car accident, shoulder, neck problem. So yoga took me a long way. Get me out of being dependent on somebody fixing me. Okay. Then I got in another accident. I couldn't do downward dog. So I got into Qigong, more standing. Hey, look at these, these accidents and these diseases and the pain is actually leading me on a way that helps me be more myself. Mm. Right. Cause what do you, you know, you got to deal with what you got and turn it into something better into the alchemy, the transmutation and, and the, the being willing to change. So when you've got these, this, this, uh, problem pattern person at the problem level you're you're an object it's a subject object relationship physician fix this you be you be the dummy and you just like you know it's like at, at the waiting room at many doctor's offices it's sort of like send your stomach in and the rest of you wait there <laughs> right we're only interested in your stomach but it, it's that passive object patient as object and this is truly patient right the middle level Well, the other side is really self-initiated and we can't make anything happen. I can't make people do their Qigong or eat a certain way or behave in their relationships in a certain way. I can witness and support that. And frankly, it makes, you know, half my day is doing that. It makes the other half of the day much easier because when you're in that state with people, it's like, yep, we're fixing up your shoulder again. And how's the gardening? Oh, and you know, your 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 son and daughter are getting along better. Oh, like, you know, while you're working on the shoulder, you're doing all that. And hey, you might even be thinking, my goodness, they're having this tightness behind their pericardium. And we're talking about their kids having quarrels and the family patterns. And like, no wonder your pericardium's like that. And your liver's probably saying something else. Um, so, you know, we're framing it in a big way. And that's where that middle, the pattern level is. So this is really a person level. And this is a patient level. You know, what kind of relationships are they? One's very active, one's very passive. In the middle is a partnership where you're working with them, but it's up to them to be taking the initiative into changing their patterns and their choices mm. and their behavior. So it's a, it's a back and forth. And that's really where the person as patient So we use the term person-centered because it's about coming from radiating from the center out through relationship systems. So it's that's really sort of a disguised language of Sekhmet or of the Vs 
that doesn't involve sort of these particular historical precedents. It's just, hey, healing starts from inside. It starts with the person, and medicine's job is to assist that self-healing process. So it's person-centered, right? And then around that, you have like the primary environment they live in, including maybe you as a doctor. Oh, their secondary environment, including like, do I talk to their chiropractor and to their internist? And, you know, the network of of providers that they work with that are supporting their process. Oh, and what about their extended family and their context? Context is so huge. You know, people forget, you know, it's like I got a guy whose job is to work in a, a, a lab, a clean lab uh, at, a, at a fab place. And he, um, he, he goes to work at 1030 at night five and it's like oh my god by every system this is like going to screw you up and i can show you the studies about melatonin about night shift and cancer and diabetes but right now you're working that shift and that's what you want to do so my job is to help you cause the least damage come through it the best because he's actually in pretty good health my job is not to say quit your job and work normal hours and follow the clock of nature um, it's to talk about that and, you know, give him a place to share his frustration that he knows he's sort of out of sync. Um, but, you know, my job is to help him with where he's at because he didn't come and say, you know, hey, write, rewrite my life script. He came and said, you know, I want to take care of my health. And he identified his sleep time as sort of like a potential risk. Mm. What is the vice for uh, people who might not be familiar? Um, Okay, well, I have to give you two levels of answer to this because, right. frankly, I'm, uh, I guess I'll say, in the scholarly minority heretic role. Um, the vis medicatrix naturae is a phrase often referred to in the naturopathic communities as, quote, the self-healing power of nature mm -hmm. um, and attributed to the Hippocratic physicians or Hippocrates. Um, I started looking at this about eight to 10 years ago because I'm working on the history section of the uh, foundations of natural medicine and working on this giant 300 page timeline. And I don't put anything in that I haven't just checked myself because lots of people just perpetuate errors. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was talking with Dr. David Schleich who loves language and the, the vis word. I just said, this is just, they're missing something here because that's sort of like a modernist engineering translation. And I always am big on taking terms in their original context. Like chi is not energy. Nobody used the word energy before the 1700s. Don't mess with what they originally, you could learn something. It's like trying to go to, you know, an American resort in Mexico and claim you went to Mexico. It's like, no, you went to the American resort. You were not in Mexico. As Mexico is a, as a feeling, is a place, is not just a location. And um, so the word vis really is an informed intelligence. It's a, a movement, it's a characteristic. The middle world is not nouns. The middle world is activities, intelligent, informed activities, right? It's the doing it's the, and the becoming. And that vis really is an intelligent power, almost like some might call an angelic power or something. It has a certain kind of job and knowing and function. So we should expand that. Maybe we could call it, you know, the, the um, intelligent power of nature. Okay. So I worked with that for a few years and talked with a lot of people and they're like, okay, that makes sense. But that's sort of 
weird. We have this nice, simple translation. And I'm always, I, I left naturopathic schooling saying, hey, we have a handful of slogans that are shallow. None of them are connected to classical literature. They're made up, they're often bad translations, and they're not very operative. So the whole three by three thing came from how do, what are we actually doing when we're clinically effective? It's not, it's not a, a theory, it's a description, mm -hmm. okay? So, um, the, so VIS, you know, we started working with VIS as a word. In the last few years, I talked to several scholars and did a lot of work on where did that phrase come from? So one, it's every part of it is translated inaccurately and it's situated inaccurately. It's, it's a, a late Renaissance or maybe a late medieval term, okay? It's obviously Latin, not Greek, okay? So I traced down where did the transition, because we've got sort of the Greek, we've got the Latin, and then we have this English translation. Okay, um, so the the Latin term is obviously Galenic, right? The Hippocratics wrote in Greek and the Galenics wrote in Latin. So, um, okay, so it's not attributed to Hippocrates. Um, so what I looked at is the word naturae. Naturae does not mean nature with a capital N like mother nature. That is a concept that from our cultural lineage comes from like 1600s England, and they start talking about mother nature. And in fact, they often do so in a context of there are three parts of what gets you better. God, the physician, and nature, okay? In a Galenic and a Hippocratic framework, it's naturae. I took Latin for four years. I looked at this and I said, this is not of nature. That's not real Latin. Um, natura is plural, plural feminine, right? So it's your natures. And you think about it, it's kind of like, oh, this is about your natures, just like five phases. When your natures, your constitution, your humoral balance is dynamic and in play, you'll be healthy, right? Oh, so the power in the body comes from this dance of the humors, the naturae. So when you're in alignment, likewise, you know, the phrase your nature, your nature is to be this way. So when you're in alignment with your nature and your natures are working in, in collaboration, then you're going to be healthy. And that's the root of your healing power. Okay. The next phase, I talked particularly to this uh, German classical scholar, because I kept trying to find people who would translate this original Greek phrase, which really translates something like, um, your natures are the physicians of your disease. Okay, this is the original Greek phrase. Then it becomes this vis manicatrix naturae. Then it becomes healing power of nature. So um, naturae has got a big jump off track there. Okay, the Greek and the Galenic are very much, it's about your natures, your humoral balance, et cetera. And that's how those doctors think. And they didn't think about nature as an external thing like we have come to think of a huge delusion and a harmful one. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Gaian, we're all Gaians. Those maps with their lines are delusions. And they change all the time. I used to get globes and have to change it when the, the, the lines and the names moved. And it's like, that's not reality. So the third word, medicatrix, because I had gotten into this discussion because I said, it's not healing. You're translating 
metachondrics into healing. And these are two distinct lineages. And this goes back to medicine and healing. Mm-hmm. Healing comes from a ancient com, comes from um, old German into English, and holos is to make whole. Who can make you whole? I can't make you whole. You know, when people go around saying I'm a healer, it's like I hope you're healing yourself because <laughs> you can't heal anybody else. You might catalyze, cajole, feed, support, all kinds of things, but only you can heal yourself. Only you can make yourself whole. Right? Holos healing. Medicatrix is not healing. It's in the medica lineage of words coming from Latin. Medic is physician. Mm -hmm. And in the Greek, the word is iatros. Mm -hmm. You know, nature, that your natures are the physicians of your disease. Okay. Um, So what I did was then I started asking people, and particularly this one German scholar, about medicatrix. Because he said, you're on the right track with Wies and you're on the right track with Naturae, good things. Um, if you want a great book about Mother Nature and in England, there's that, it's called Mirth and Misery. And I have like a little 12, 15 page version, but great book. Um, I gave a copy to David Schleich because he loves stuff like that. Um, he's, a, he's a Canterbury, he's, he, he's a Chaucer's uh, scholar. So um, Medicatrix if it translates any, and he said it's non-standard English or non-standard Latin, um, that it would translate to female physicians, plural. Your mm-hmm. natures, and remember, naturae is feminine plural, right? Mm-hmm. Not your na- natures are your female physicians. It's like wow, this takes on all kinds of new meaning. Um, and I used to like the word nature because I'm a Gaian and it's like, hey, mm-hmm. the healing power of nature is the healing power of Gaia. We'll just re-up this in a more modern um, biological terminology. Um, but instead, it took it to this very different thing of one that these female forces inside you are the physicians and they do so through the arrangement, the interaction of your humors. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, that like, you know, not only did we clear up misinformation and misattribution, but we have a much deeper thing. So, you know, I don't want people to all go, oh, no, we have to change all our literature. You should say in the spirit of, but to say that healing power of nature is Hippocratic and it means, you know, vis medicatrix naturae means that that's just not accurate. And you know, as long as it's an internal thing, it can be our mistake. And the problem is, I learned this 30 years ago, and nobody else has said, you know, like our slogan's wrong. Like these words don't mean that. And we have to be self-critical. To me, that's what that history timeline really was, is to be critical and say, oh, the streams of medicine that feed into who we are. And that includes a a lot of MDs, you notice, all those old homeopaths are MDs. It includes people who do all kinds of reductionist, mechanistic medicine, and it includes all kinds of woo-woo people and nurses and old ladies. And our our model is that we're person-centered and we take whatever tools are appropriate to serve you. So to me, that's naturopathic. Um, and the emphasis being on the self-healing power of the person. Um, so, you know, what we want to do is just be clear and say, here's this phrase we use. And it, we, we, in the spirit of the original meaning, we now 
mean this by it. But to say it's a translation from mm-hmm. the wrong place and the wrong words, it's like our profession has to grow up and, you know, get rid of some things. And that doesn't mean get rid of the woo-woo stuff. Mm. There's just as much falsehood and shallowness in the reductionist camp as there is in the woo-woo camps. Mm. And to, to me, it's like back to the false argument of drugs versus herbs is, are you doing something to support the self-healing process or are you messing with it? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you got to mess with it. Sometimes you want to stop a fever, you know, a fever in a three-year-old and an 85-year-old are very different things. You know, Chinese medicine is very worried about the loss of, of yang and qi from a high fever and in an adult that's a reasonable concern. You know, how do you manage the response pattern? But again, you know, someone has surgery for their colon cancer. Okay, now what do we do beforehand to make you stronger? What do we do on the side to get you through it better? What do we do afterwards to pick up the pieces, mm-hmm. get some visceral manipulation, rebuild your gut, you know, all the pieces we need to make you come out stronger? Because mm-hmm. you didn't choose to get in a car accident either. But, you know, like what, you know, this is the situation you're in. What are we going to do to move it forward? So one of the things I did in the history timeline coming out of Coast and Canidos was really look at vitalism as as sort of, again, misinterpreted. Because people think, oh, it's about energy in the body versus dead bodies. And yes, you know, if you say, patient, do you want to be like the cadaver or the living person? Hey, I want to be like the living person. Well, what's the difference? Well, this one's active and coherent and dynamic, and this one's a blob, okay? You want to be these things. So it's not just about the stuff, but it's about it's about some levels of organization. And more importantly, it's not the car and driver motif. I'm not a big advocate of the soul jumps into your body and lives in life and then runs out of parts and dies. Mm-hmm. Is your body is like the, the landing legs of the spacecraft. And it puts you down on Earth and then you poop, pull up your landing legs and go off and come back down somewhere else. Or maybe you're in several places at once for that matter. Because time and space are moderately irrelevant to the, you know, the, the part of you that's eternal, that Horus part. Um, so what I did is, and, and you know, the vitalism, if you look it up in most places, they'll say vitalism was discredited in the late 1800s right. by the discovery or the synthesis of uric acid. So outside forces can create life, uh, you know, the results of living systems without the living system. So there's no vitalism, which is really sort of like, uh, did you talk to us about what we mean? You know, it's like trying to tell black people what jazz is or something like that. It was like, um, you know, I generally go to people who do something and ask them, how do you do it? Why do you do it? What does it mean to you? Instead of pretending I know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So I reframe the vitalist current in terms of the doctor-patient relationship. The one school of being the interveners and physician dominant and the other being the cultivators, person dominant, self-healing dominant right? And you can track through the centuries. These are the physicians who literally say, nature is stupid. Bodies don't know what to do. The doctor is the smart one. The doctor is going to get you better. This is a camp and you can follow people through the centuries voicing this perspective. Mm. You know, personally, once you get into ecology and psychoneuroimmunology, all I can say is, are you up on the science? Mm-hmm. This complexity theory sort of blows all that away. 
Um, the other school is the we're here to help the, understand the person's healing response pattern, to support them in that, remove the obstacles to cure, feed the system, vroom, there it goes. Um, and that issue of the therapeutic relationship and the two roles, I think, is a much better understanding of vitalism. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're just doing surgery, you don't want to kill the person, but their self-healing response, you care about hours, days, maybe weeks, right? Medicine only can do what the self-healing allows. The difference between those who survive a procedure and those who don't, right, is not the procedure, it's their response pattern, what kind of juice they have, what kind of strength, what kind of soul mission they have, all of those things that are way beyond the realm of the surgeon. So again, mm. it's, it's not an either or, but where in the dynamic between the person and the physician or any, any caregiver um, that, you know, where is it? To me, that's vitalism. Vitalism are the people who say, we're working for their self-healing response in alignment with nature. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? And c- coming also from like, as you're saying, this perspective of the body does know the natural processes are always seeking healing and we're just here, you know, trying to help modify or help that along, catalyze it versus the other one, which is, you know, this is a machine and like, that's the part that's wrong. We're going to fix it. We're going to get rid of it. And then, you know, come back when there's another part that's broken, like that fundamental flip. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the problem pattern person, because, Hey, your, your neck's out of alignment. You got a headache. Like I'm going to adjust your neck. Okay. By multiple techniques that I might employ, depending on the person and their condition. Um, but, you know, why do you have a shoulder neck problem? Is it from an accident? Is it from your desk? Is it from your work, um, for your car seat? All kinds of reasons. Um, so we always want to look at that. I get tired of adjusting the same necks over and over in the same way. It means we haven't changed the pattern level. Mm-hmm. But this notion that vitalism is about supporting the self-healing process through the therapeutic relationship and, and that's why, you know, naturopaths, at least in the last few years, started talking about being relationship medicine. And I think that is far more relevant because you can give a homeopathic remedy or give an antibiotic or whatever with a certain relationship framing and quality of that relationship with the person. And the particular modality is in often ways like tertiary, right? The first thing is the person. The second thing is the relationship. The intervention is like way down on the list. And, you know, I, I particularly don't like to take credit. Like people say, oh, you're a healer. And it's like, no, I'm a doctor and I'm doing my self-healing. And hey, if we're in the same room and great things happen, like there's a lot of healing in the room. But really, my job is to help situate you and navigate you and show you the map through to do that. And by the way, most doctors don't say it, but, and you know, uh, how many of the patients we see mirror our own issues, whether those are interpersonal issues or gut issues or tension issues. And part of that might be, you know, that we're, you know, seeing the part that we know best Um, in most cultures to treat something you have to have had it in the past. So, you know, I'm there to serve as a, a catalyst, but you know, whether that's in, you know, challenging them to write a song or asking to hear the song or see their their article or their 
paper or adjusting their neck or giving them some herbs for their gut or working on their relationship pattern. You know, I'm working all the way through that spectrum according to them and their place on the map. And it's not a like a linear map. It's a spatial map because some people are excelling in one area and other areas are really stuck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to, you know, what, what we're doing is having those relationships. And in that process, we're also, you know, the word that people talk about doctor as teacher, but I, I think doctor as mirror is equally important. And it's, you know, like with your kids, it's not what you say, it's what you do is how do we live that in our own life? And how do we say, you know, yeah, I had some wheat yesterday because the sandwich I was having was so good and now I'm stuffy and my palate itches and it was a great sandwich and I'm going to take something to moderate those symptoms and I'm not going to have any for a couple of weeks now. But how to work with that ever-evolving, you know, and that's like the Nefertum thing is that ever-emerging from you and the world around you, how is that always emerging? And like, how can you be true to yourself in that place? And now that's when we see, you know, the, the people might die, but they're at peace with themselves. You know, they reconciled with their family. They did the creative work they wanted, you know, because what you don't want is to, to die with regrets, you know, but everybody's going to die. So our job is not to make people not die. Our, our job is to help people to live well and to learn from their burdens, you know, and to be more mm. compassionate and to just be a better human to, you know, mm. like I said, to live in Maat. Mm. It makes me think of a part of the uh, Asclepius myth where he was, he was punished by Zeus because he was bringing people back from the dead. Do you think that's like metaphorical well, for them overstepping? Mm -hmm. um, it is... Well, that's when the gods claim that they're gods and we're humans. And frankly, I think we're at a point in history where we're all just beings. And, um, you know, in so many religions, they say people are the children of God. And well, what happens when children grow up? Mm -hmm. Ideally, they should be like their parents now, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the gods become grandparent gods or what, but the humans, it's obviously time to step up and take our responsibility both in in our strengths and in our humility mm. you know and to to me you know when when are you at your best when you're in good relationship with people mm. right with the place you're in and that's good for everybody including you you and your physiology mm -hmm. right you know what's the immune system always framed as oh me in relationship to my environment okay so where's your recycling right you know, where, where, where's your talking nice to your mother? Um, mm -hmm. Where, where's all those things? Where's the things you say about people when they're not around? You know, is it your job to, to engage in, in judgment? You know, justice and judgment are very different things. Judgment is a conclusion mm -hmm. and justice is a dynamic process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, isn't that what a diagnosis is? It's like a judgment. It's a conclusion. And as soon as you've got somebody in conclusion, I think you're starting to mess with the story. Mm -hmm. you know, the doctor is starting to play too big of a role. And this is like Bernie Siegel and exceptional cancer patients. You know, the, the people are, who are most intriguing are the people who are supposed to die and don't. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who just like, oh, you have 18 months to live, you know, and one day short of 18 months, they die. 
he was interested in the people who like you have a year to live and hey that was three years ago but i got a garden in the spring i got to do this in the summer change things in the fall i get so they're they're moving with it and they're doing what they need to be doing Mm -hmm. hell they don't die as easily sometimes or when they die they die without regrets yeah they've done what they want to do and to go and say oh i haven't sung a song in public because i'm ashamed go do it i even sang a song sort of front of the naturopathic convention when i did a a a keynote address and it's like i don't usually sing songs but let's try this song Mm -hmm. and it's like oh i got one checked off on my list because if i'm afraid to sing a song in front of some friends hey i just did it in front of a whole bunch of people who are my professional peers and i don't know half of them so Mm -hmm. like you know it's like oh good you know that that felt good but you know what enables me to do that is just say well, hell, what does it really matter? But two is like, it's a, it's not a contrivance. It was relevant to the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, what you were saying about the the focus on the person and the individual that resonates a lot. And I think uh, where a lot of the issues come in through more conventional, typical practices is. Uh, treating people as if they are, you know, kind of generalities or especially statistics, like yeah. in those cases where the, you have six months, like that's based on some study on, you know, a thousand, yeah. like, but, but there's some people in that study who completely had a remission and there's others who died quicker. And it's like, you know, applying statistics to people, like it gives you a general idea, but yeah. to give it as like a pronouncement of you must have six months is, I mean, it's, it's definitely you know, very bold and, and a little well, bit too much. It's it's a misconstruction and more often misconstrued by the people who hear it than the people who say it. Yeah. But, you know, it is as like, okay, five out of a hundred had this outcome. Okay. How do you get to be one of the five or the number yeah. of, I, of patients I have who are obviously in a very minority situation, but you know, Peter Diadamo has a blog and he calls it N equal one. Because that's all you ever got is the end number is how many people are involved in the study. And you got one person involved in your study and it's changing over time and they're all variables. You know, I, I did this book, big book on interactions. And when I was working on the second edition, it became very clear that the person was the biggest variable. And to do that, we needed to get into genomics and all kinds of things. And and you can map out who's going to have what kind of interaction. Like, hey, you don't have much in the way of liver enzymes to do this. Like, you should take that drug instead of this one. Or for that matter, I'm an O-type. St. John's wort is an irritant to my system. Um, But instead, to really say, you know, um, but when people say, you know, what's the chance of that happening, right? The synchronicities. And the synchronicities hold life together. Whenever people say that, I always say 100% because that's what happened, right? doesn't matter about the other 99 occasions or 999. It's That was 100% for that one. Mm-hmm. And how do we be in those places where we're, you know, 100% in alignment with, with destiny? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what Chinese medicine would say is our job is to be in mm-hmm. alignment with destiny. And that's not whether we write a great book or whether we're just a good gardener. And even mm-hmm. my use of the word just, you know, is like a, a judgment that comes from a certain worldview. Mm-hmm. In many cultures, they'd say, damn, a good gardener is way more useful than a smart professor. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that in uh, in research, 
uh, all of those big opportunities for growth in, in terms of understanding the placebo effects, spontaneous remission, these kind of things, they're uh, typically just the focus on is on discounting them and getting back to the thing at hand. But what about, you know, those out of a thousand people with terminal cancer, the five that just it went away, like, let's study those five people and see what did they do that was different. And, and that should be medicine is like, yeah. how does people survive when they shouldn't? Yeah. Like that's well, a great and, and example. Placebo is such a maligned and misused term. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we should get rid of it in a way Me too. because placebo is the vis. In, in naturopathic parlance, which I, again, am sort of like now, now he more hesitant to use those kind of shorthands, but the, the self-healing response is the most elegant medicine. To me, if you get better with no external intervention, like, hey, let's figure out how that worked. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, 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 so what, the 90 people who got better with the medicine, but I wanna see the five people who got better without the medicine. Mm -hmm. That's way more interesting because doctors are pretty arrogant about thinking their interventions fix everything. And that's what the placebo really is, is oh, it got better without the doctor. And back to those lineages is the one group, the people coming through Canidos, through reduction and rationalist lineage, they will say the patient doesn't matter. The person and their self-healing and their destiny and their diet and their genetics, now they're starting to add in genetics, mm. and maybe even socioeconomic status. But you know, all those variables don't matter. And it's all doctor and disease framed. And to me, that's just sort of a delusory notion because you got too many variables. You don't know if somebody got better because the herbs you gave them or the acupuncture point you added, or maybe they fell in love, or maybe they had an important astrological transit shift, or maybe their mother gave them a kiss for the first time in 10 years. It, you know, but you think, oh man, it was that point that did it or the remedy that did it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I hear some homeopaths and I just moan and they say, oh, I cured them. And it's like, no, they cured themselves. You were lucky enough to figure out this little magnetic, electromagnetic articulation that could trigger their self-healing response. But as soon as you say that you cured them, you just took that from them. Mm -hmm. You claimed that you made them better. And hell, you know, if you adjust their neck and you say now their neck's better, like you can take some credit for that. But to say that the remedy did that is yeah. like, no, you were really good homeopath and other people gave them the wrong remedy. But, you know, if you go to the wrong house with the mm. wrong information and you knock, nobody answers either. Yeah. So you got to have the right, you know, the, the right instructions to meet the system where it's at. Sure, mm -hmm. You know, in Greek medicine, there, there's there's. Physis, which is the self-healing response, and there's idos, which is the it, but there's also technique, technical skill. Mm -hmm. You have to be good at what you do. And, you know, frankly, though, I've seen people, they get better with the wrong remedy. They get better with a stupid herb formula. They get better in spite of it because mm -hmm. they need to get better. Mm -hmm. But we're also in a type of medicine that every treatment is a probe. It's a feedback exercise. So if someone calls and says, oh, the herbs you gave me did these things I don't like and these things I like, that's feedback. It's not like I poisoned them. I don't have to worry like if I'd given them some drug with two pages of adverse effects. Mm -hmm. like, oh, it helped your liver. It didn't help your spleen. Okay, we need to give you this kind of formula. Or, oh, you just highlighted a part of the remedy picture that I had been ignoring mm -hmm. and I'd been focusing on this. And, oh, 
gosh, you actually need this remedy and now it makes sense. So all the feedback is information in the therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to have good technique. And part of the medical anthropology is you have to be skilled in your role. You have to play the good theatrical role of being the doctor. And that has to be convincing. And that has to help people trust you because ultimately that trust is the biggest thing you have. You have trust and you have hope and you have the idea that from your honest opinion, they could get better. But that's back to trust and hope because without those, you can say most anything and it doesn't matter. But, you know, uh, how much of it, I, I saw this medical anthropology article that um, by Kleinman that I use in history class. And if you know Ted Kapchuk, Ted Kapchuk was a student of Kleinman. That's why he's got this whole medical anthropology perspective. And Kleinman, at least the way I read this study, is you take these Korean people and some go to the shaman and some people go to the modern neurologist. And I forgot what the third one was, but, but basically if they went to a practitioner, all practitioners got roughly the same outcomes, okay? But what people needed the most was to go to a professional that was in alignment with their roles, their expectations, mm -hmm. their cultural construct that said, mind calm down, body stop freaking out, self-healing, get on with your business. Mm -hmm. They went through the cultural ritual that they needed to. And that's why literally, you know, uh, some people, this is how I talk to them. These are the therapies I use with them because this is their worldview. Other people, this is their worldview. And then there's always the people who are shifting worldviews and the people who sort of have the surface layer of themselves they present and the underlying layer that they actually live in. But, you know, how to meet them where they're at with culturally appropriate tools and mm -hmm. explanations and which vocabulary. And yes, we started with Western terms and now I'm introducing Chinese terms, but we want to, you know, take one step at a time and be, you know, in the role that we're supposed to be. Mm. Now, there's an interesting study that looked at people with uh, schizophrenia, uh, either in the uh, West or the East. I believe it was in India that they looked at, and it was a pretty, it was a pretty large study. What they found in looking at the overall um, symptoms and the kind of hallucinations and, and that kind of thing that would happen, depending on where a person was, they found that in the East. Uh, people reported a very, very much larger amount of positive hallucinations uh, and positive in the sense of, you know, they would see like a God talking to them, something would say some good words. They, they were filled with some kind of positive emotion. Whereas in the West, the amount of uh, kind of fear and paranoia and these kind of elements of the hallucinations was very, very significantly higher. So it's like the same disease in a different culture one culture says, you know, that person's like sick, something's wrong with them, they're dangerous, blah, blah, blah. The other culture says, you know, this is some maybe special power that they have, but it needs to be helped. They still need like guidance. And, you know, a person has a completely different experience of the same quote unquote disease. Yeah, so I find I, that interesting. One, I find disease terms to be moderately useless. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, in some places, those people would be hired to be working at the temple mm -hmm. or hired to be shamans and say, oh, you have different behavior. You're weird, W-Y-R-D. You're following your guardian spirit. And this is how you're supposed to be. And we're not going to pathologize you. 
we're going to say this is how you function and here we have a role for you i mean mm -hmm. luther managed and to get rid of the mythic layer in western culture and you know catholics got a good strong mythic layer but luther's job was to get rid of the mythic layer and with that you know the idea that you're talking to gods or to angels i guess jesus is an exception but generally, you're not supposed to talk to disincarnate beings, including your ancestors, which in most cultures is like, you should talk to your ancestors every day. You should give them some tea. You should say hi. You should say thank you. I mean, talking to dead ancestors is just like most of the world. That's just, you walk in the house, there's the ancestors. Yeah, hi. Um, but, you know, that's, that's crazy, even though a lot of European cultures continue those practices in other forms. But Luther, followed by the scientisms, um, really sort of got rid of that mythic layer. And in, in India, I mean, 40% of my patients are, are, are um, Hindu. So, um, well, let's say most of those are Hindu. Some are, are Muslims or Jains. But um, those people having doing a puja, doing a, a, a celebration, um, doing a meditation, those are those are normal parts of their culture, even among the people who work at Intel and the people who are research scientists. You know, that's part of their culture. In our culture, they'll generally try to separate your religion from your your secular life. Um, but to me, that's just you're hiding under a bigger umbrella of modernism that mm. says this other stuff isn't real. Mm. And so we have a, a stripped down cartoon mythic world and we don't have the living beings that most people, you know, today we have we have festival for the great goddesses uh, of, of India happening nine days long. And my patients and friends who are engineers, and the housewives and the kids, they're there. You know, and they're doing their puja and they're having ecstatic activities and they consider that part of normal reality. And hey, then I go home and I um, do normal American reality. And then the next day I go to work and I do normal scientist technician uh, engineer work. And it all fits in a bigger frame than what a lot of us have. I, I think a lot of that's coming back because it's human nature. Humans need poetry. They need art. Art is probably mm. one of the most important human activities. You know, in fact, art could be the all-encompassing human activity. Um, and, you know, we just have a stripped-down version. And I think yeah. what's going to do is we're going to come out of it in a different place with a deeper appreciation for those things that are not just based on dogma and inherited traditions, that they're chosen traditions. So, you know, mm. and, and even a parallel is... You know, historically, like you live in a, a river valley, like we're Guyans and Lori and I are obsessed with getting to know the Tualatin River Valley, the people who have lived here, the way the water is, the way the hills are, the animals, fish, the whole scenario, because that's our local Gaia, hmm. right? And historically, people often, they say, you say, who are you? They say, we're the people in whatever language. And where are you the people of? Oh, we're the people of this of this place, right? We, we don't claim we're the people of that other place. We're the people of this place, okay? And that um, what happens is particularly through enclosures and the creation of private property and then colonization um, is people's place got taken away from them. 
and their ancestors got taken away from them. And they start to identify with these vague theories and abstracted religions and um, all kinds of things. But what's happening, and particularly in the last 30 years, really since 1969, since humans for the first time saw space, saw the earth from outside, mm-hmm. is now we know we're part of Gaia. So when we're going to realign with being uh, in our place, is it scalar? I've got my river valley, that's part of Cascadia, that's part of this continent, that's part of Gaia. I am, I am part of Gaia. And that's, a, that's not mythology only, mm-hmm. it's also biology, mm-hmm. is I'm part of a, a nested system. And when we do that, when we start to say we're all Gaians, well, what, what happens to immigration? Um, what happens to wars? What happens to you know petty tyrants? Is all that stuff is just should be nonsense washed away, mm. and we should be organizing in ways that help us and live in alignment with the place we live. You know, otherwise our body politic is sort of like got some really bad self-destructive habits. But we're in a collective curative process, and the first stage of that is getting to know us as us. Okay, mm-hmm. so there are various names by which people know humanity as humanity. It's like humans as one being. We're all humans. And maybe we're even evolving into the next phase of humans. One group of my friends say homo veritas, that we're finally becoming true humans. Mm. And that as a collectivity, we can be the humans relating to Gaia, right? Otherwise, it's sort of me and Gaia. I mean, even me and Cascadia. But me and Gaia, that's pretty tough. Like even Cascadians in Gaia, that's like a big. But what's the equal scale? Is humanity as a whole relating to Gaia as a whole and saying, let's have a healthy dance. You know, that's humanity growing up. Because, you know, when you used to live in the river valley, you took care of the river valley. Because otherwise your grandchildren had problems. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, there's a lot of disconnect. Idea that you know, with colonialism, well, I re- I screwed up my place, or like some bad people took over, so I'm just going to go somewhere else and take their land. You know, mm-hmm. and so like you know, hey, I'm Polish and a little gypsy, and I'm living here in Cascadia. You know, I have to have respect for the Tualatin people, the Kalapuya tribe, to say I'm living on your land. You know, there haven't been many of you around for a while, but I'm living here and I have some respect for what you did here. And I'm I'm also Polish and I'm also Guyan. So I have multiple levels of identity that have to be reconciled. But then again, you think of the three worlds model. Oh, my past, my matter is mm-hmm. my biological place. You know, I could go to, to parts of Poland and say, wow, I feel really at home here. Okay, then there's the part of me that's the social interactions that is a modern person living outside Portland in Cascadia, and that's where my relationships are. But who's my heart mind world? You know, my world of values and shared vision. Oh, I have those people all over the globe. I have a bunch in Portland. I have a a whole crew of people in Las Vegas and Victoria and Seattle, and we're in a heart-mind level, we're a tribe, a tribe of affinity. So you got your, your, your um, knowing and you're associating by, by just place and time and matter, right? Mm-hmm. By where you were born. 
And then we've got those relationship we choose. And then we've got those that are our shared vision. Like the middle world, you know, you ask the people, how many of the people that you used to have be your friends when you worked at X job two years ago, and they were your best friends, how many do you still hang out with? Mm-hmm. Usually not many, because those are friends of convenience, mm-hmm. right? And then you get the friends where you share something and you create something, and you've got the friends who really know what you're talking about and who you are, mm-hmm. you know? And what, again, what's our health? <laughs> Line it up. You know, just like the healthy ego, you got your star self, you got your solar self expressive, you got your lunar emotional self, and you got your physical self. Is it one over the other? You know, we're often taught, oh, the spirit is over the matter. Mm-hmm. Eh, didn't work. They all need each other. Dominative relationship. Mm-hmm. We'll put down the ego. The ego is often too boasting, but the ego is also where the song came through. Right, mm-hmm. the ego just mm-hmm. shouldn't pretend it's the star. Yeah, right. It is the star, but it's local. I love what a star is your true self. Because think of what the difference between a star and a sun is. Mm. The same thing, but then a different frame. Yeah, Alan Watts always uh, says something that I always laugh about about the ego. He says, you know, even the act of trying to remove your ego and be against it and all this is also the ego. Yeah, yeah, and the key is. Your ego is the one behind the mask. That's why you see it in the eyes, right? Mm. Is the healthy shen. Mm. But what do we do? We tend to think, I think when people use the term ego, getting rid of your ego, all this, most of them are not going to become sadhus. Most of them are not trying to reach nirvana next week. Okay, mm. They're trying to be their true self. And what happens is they've got their, I was this kid in grade school. I was this kid when I was an infant. I was in this relationship that turned out great or this one that didn't. And these are all masks. They're social roles. That's where the word personae comes from. And we get stuck thinking we're the personae. Is how do people see us from outside? Mm. And we got to remember how we see from inside how we see outside. Because that's the real us. And you got to be able to take off. Oh, I'm, I'm not at work. I'm not my doctor mask anymore, mm. you know. And what happens? You're at the grocery store and you see someone who's your patient. And they're like, do you, you know, there's awkwardness because you can't say, how are you doing? Well, my hemorrhoids are acting up, <laughs> right? Wrong role. Mm-hmm. In that role, we're, we're neighbors or we live in the same community and we happen to have the same kind of grocery affinity. Um, but, you know, likewise, if you started talking to your banker the way you talk to your DJ friend, eh, it's probably not going to work. If you talk to your girlfriend the way you talk to your mother, it's probably not going to work. You know, and who are the people who have pathologies? And and frankly, what are physical or emotional pathologies is they're getting stuck in a mask, mm. right? There's no more feedback. There's no more dynamism. It's like you get stuck in a role. The people who come home with their shoulders stuck up, they're stuck in their role of being at work in front of a computer. Mm-hmm. If they could just take that mask off and put it down, they might find their shoulder isn't doing that. Mm-hmm. Right. And if they can, you know, say, oh, I'm going to switch my masks and even to play that game with people you know, and say, oh, I'm going to use a certain tone of voice and affect with certain people and see how they respond. And I'm going to do a different one with these people. Then you realize, oh, who are you behind the mask that's doing that? That's the real you. And that real mm-hmm. you is not necessarily the timeless you of a infinity and the Shiva point and whatever, nor is it just the physical material of you. It's the experience of you, 
right? That middle world is where the activity is, the organized activity. And when you're in that state of being yourself, right? It's not the yourself necessarily, it's the being. It's mm. the presence of you in mm. that role. And when people are in that role and not just, I mean, when they're in that place, not just in their role, that's where they're also going to tap into their healing, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the who they are. And that's mm -hmm. the who their destiny is and all of that. The, uh, the self circle in, uh, in Jungian tradition where the unconscious, the ego, that's all part of the... The big self. The big, the big self, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's even like wisdom and knowledge. We got wisdom is a knowing and knowledge is information. Mm -hmm. You know, ideally, and this is the function of thought, is how do you turn knowledge into wisdom so that you don't need the information, you know how it works. It's comforting right, you know, too you know to the know. Because what's that? That's pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And you see enough instances, and ideally you'll start to see the pattern. Mm -hmm. And that makes it much easier. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the times when you see a patient and like they've got, you can have an hour discussion, but five minutes into it, it's like, oh, here's the pattern. Mm -hmm. You know, and I can't treat you with the irritable bowel syndrome like the person this morning with the irritable bowel syndrome because you're different people. Mm -hmm. Different causes. Sure the pathology might be there, but your your factors influencing you, your response pattern, all of that's different, and that's not static, right? As soon as you become a thing, then it's static, and that's the biggest problem with diseases: is people identify with their diseases, mm -hmm. and thingification, or I guess more appropriately, reification, um, is is a pathology of our language and our culture. Like we look at the sun in traditional cultures. The sun is a being. And in Egypt, they'll say it's it's Ra. And in Rome or Greece, they'll say, oh, it's Apollo, you know, and in you go to England, the Roman soldier goes to England and they say, oh, we call the sun this and you call the sun this. Like, hey, it's the sun, right? But that's a living being. When we talk about the sun, we talk about a thing. Like it's it's a dead object. And the, the sun is not a thing. The sun is an activity, right? It's a verb. It's a, it's sunning, mm -hmm. right? And we're not really things. We're, you know, you're bug donning, right? Mm -hmm. I'm mitching. And mm -hmm. uh, the problem is if we take it too seriously and get stuck in that and forget, yeah. oh, who's the one playing that game? Mm -hmm. And are we taking our game? Are we like believing our game? Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. Not big on beliefs because beliefs are fabrications. Right. I, I'm much happier with either I know because I've experienced it mm -hmm. or I don't know. And that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's not interesting. But, you know, people talk about belief and it's like, um, mm -hmm. where, where did you get that third hand information? Yeah, it's like the finger pointing to the moon. That's that's uh, my favorite yeah. metaphor of, yeah. of how words work. You know, the, the words are the finger and they're pointing towards something, the moon. Uh, but you know, what are the words pointing towards? What is the name? What is the personality? What is the yeah. disease really trying to get? And what, whatever it gets to is not verbal. It's not word understanding. It's the, it's the label on the door, but it's not what's inside the room. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and the labels are really good. Then they help you figure out what door to go in. Yeah, exactly. But it's not really, you're not interested in the door. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, a lot of religious traditions as they're practiced conventionally are very much uh you know 
very kind of surface type level and then you have the more mystery mystical traditions which say like hey yeah this is the door but here's how you walk through it find for yourself so yeah i always think those traditions are helpful probably should dance and sing more and then the rules won't be so tight yeah all right well i think this is a a great place to uh wrap up here we've had an amazing conversation um dr mish stargrove where can people find your work and can you talk a little bit about a the upcoming event that you're having oh okay um where can i be found uh in cascadia so um there is an event um so i'm on facebook a lot Mm -hmm. because i run several groups so if people use that medium and like any tool i'd say use it don't let it use you Mm -hmm. um is there's a group called Living Medicine, which is for students and practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a group called Cascadians Sharing Healthy Culture and Natural Medicine, which is a, a bioregional healthy culture kind of thing. There's another group called Cascadia Vortex, which is a little more on the magic and art side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that we are doing uh, Lori and I are organizing and hosting a non-local event called Living Ma'at. Mm-hmm. And it's really about Ma'at is a principle, Ma'at is a being, and Ma'at is a way of living. And you don't have to uh, believe or agree with all of those, because some people are like, hey, this is biophysics and complexity theory in organisms and how they have networks and Wow, that's Ma'at. That 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 moving relational system is Ma'at. And I'd say, yep. And that's and how do we apply it clinically? That's one of the things we've been talking about. And then there's this being who is there when you die and weighs your heart against. She's the feather that your weighed your heart is weighed against because you want to come in light as a feather. And she is she is justice. She is truth. She is respectful relations. Um, and then there's Ma'at as a way of living that we have to each day through respectful relations, through being honest with ourselves, because you can't be in a good relationship unless you're yourself too. You know, that thing about the healthy ego is how can I be in a loving, compassionate position with other people if I'm not myself? Mm-hmm. Then it's a falsehood. You know, you get two people who pretending to be their projections, it makes a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, you want two people who are being true to themselves. So how do we live in that way with each other, with ourselves, and with the with Gaia, within Gaia? And so we have people coming from different magical traditions, because there's actually a cluster of people who say the time we're moving into or have recently started is the aeon of the daughter, mm. that we've had a progression of the time of the father and of the mother and the time of the son. Horus or Christ, depending whose schedule you use, um, but of the the solar being that we are individuated in a way that our ancestors were tribal identity or nature identity, but we have individual identity, and that's a huge responsibility. And that, you know, we are in the age where not only do we have to have the consciousness of the individual, but we have to embody it. And like in the Kabbalistic traditions, they say Kether is in Malkuth in another, another way, that heaven is on earth. It always has been. We fell for that, that fall story, and it's not true. We've always been in Eden, and we just created these false separations and these authoritarian systems. And um, like we don't have to live that way. 
And when we're honest with ourselves and each other, like that stuff gets in the way. So there's this talk about the aeon of the child or the aeon of the daughter mm -hmm. and, you know, how, how not just the mother figure is coming back, but the daughter figure. It's classically the son is like the the um, the consciousness, but not necessarily embodied. And the daughter is the restoration of the unity and the embodiment of that consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we all know lots of people who are really conscious and aware and paying attention. Right. And you say, and, and how's your recycling? And are those sunflower seeds you just bought GMO? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we apply that? Mm -hmm. And we know a lot of us are having trouble applying it to living in the way we should. But we know a lot more about how we should be living and how we can live and how in our best moments we do live more and more than ever in the past. There are more enlightened beings on this earth now than ever before. Mm -hmm. But what are we going to do about it? Right. The application the every day. Up? In healthcare, in transportation, in economics, in racial justice, taking care of the land, all those things. So, so that's an element of Ma'at. Um, from the modern Egyptian point of view, they still talk in the, uh, a lot of African-Americans and Africans in Africa talk about, about Ma'at in a, a Neo-Chemite or Neo-Egyptian kind of model. Mm. And um, so we're gonna have different perspectives converging around what is Ma'at and who is Ma'at and how do we do Ma'at? Um, Excellent. And that's on May 22nd, and it's going to be people from Portugal, from London, from uh, Indiana, all kinds of places uh, coming together around this theme of, of Ma'at. Excellent. I'll uh, add all the, uh, the links to those events and where people can find you online uh, in the show notes. Great. Yeah. And, and uh, the sponsor is technically called Gaia Star Temple. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Sargrove. I've had an uh, excellent time uh, really just diving into the more mystery and the mythology and the God side. Uh, so thank you so much for being on the show. I'd love to have you on again and again and again. I feel like we can go on for many, many more hours, uh, and I would love to, but however. It ripples. Yes, absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a beautiful night. Okay, bye.